So, all right, we pick up tonight in the middle of a section. We, we got through, I think, six or seven verses last week. We turned a corner. And this is what we said when we started chapter four last week, that we've turned a corner, uh, entered into a new section of the book. And chapters one to three of First Thessalonians are really about the past about Paul's visit and his concern for them and et cetera, et cetera. And now chapters 4 and 5 are about the present time and obviously on into the future. And remember we said that verses 1 to 12, the first 12 verses are about what? Pleasing God. They're about pleasing God, having a walk that's pleasing to the Lord, uh, uh, the Lord, uh, a course of life, a manner of behavior that's pleasing to the Lord. And we, we talked about the fact that it's not, Christianity is not just about the gospel and then you kind of do whatever you want to do. You believe the gospel and you live in light of the gospel and living in the light of the gospel is to seek to live a life of holiness, which is a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And so Paul is here spelling these truths out in this section, verses 1 to 12, a life of holiness. What does it look like for these new Christians in Thessalonica? What does it look like for them to be holy, to be set apart, to be sanctified? What does it look like? And uh, one of the things I mentioned last week but didn't really get in the opportunity to say or to show you much of was that Paul says, Paul's idea, Paul's thinking is that the New Testament church is actually the Israel of God. And I think, I think we'll be able to cobble together some more bits to help prove that point tonight. That, uh, that contrary to what many believe in our day, and we want to be gentle about this sort of thing, but the eschatological viewpoint of many in our day, in our uh, popular culture, says that the church is plan B. That Israel failed, and so God judged them, and he brought in this church period, this church age, this time for the Gentiles, and then he's going to return, the Lord will return, not, not with his people and for his people together, which I would make the argument it's both, but he will just return for his New Testament church, take them back, and then turn his attention back to Israel. And there'll be this tribulation and great tribulation and thousand year millennial, literal millennial reign of Christ where Jesus sits on a literal throne in the city of Jerusalem and rules and reigns for literally 1,000 years before the end of all things and he sets up the final judgment. That's the common idea. And so the Israel of God in Old Testament times, the New Testament church, the church is raptured, sits in the bleachers. We all get to watch from the mezzanine, as it were, as God then turns his attention back to Israel and deals with Israel. But Paul's thinking, I am so sure of this, that the New Testament church is the Israel of God. And that we are the continuation and the fulfillment of what God has been doing from the beginning of the world. There's no plan B. There's no failure in the plan of God. There's no like, well, I have to switch things up now because of your failure. This is God's plan A. He only has one plan. This has been his plan from before the world was. And he's now working with his church that is comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. The middle wall of partition coming down. Ephesians 2 making that point because Christ 
it down when he lived a perfect life and then died on the cross for sinners. And so, we, Exodus 19, mentioned it last week, mentioned it again, God calls Israel to Mount Sinai and says, you're to be this kingdom of priests, this royal priesthood. And didn't happen. And so Peter picks up the language in 1 Peter 2 and says to the New Testament church, you are a royal priesthood. You are these people that were spoken of in Exodus 19. You are them. You are they. You are it. I don't know. Something like that. Choose one. And so Paul says, be sanctified. Paul says, learn to be self-controlled. Know how to control your body in a way that's holy and honorable. And he contrasts, such an important thing to see, that he contrasts those that are outside of the church, that don't know God. And he says, don't be like them. Don't live according to your passions and these sinful desires. Don't do that. Don't transgress. Don't wrong your brethren. Because why? The Lord will avenge. And the point that's made here, no matter what you say, if you live like an unbeliever, God will judge you like an unbeliever. If you say you believe in Jesus, but never seek to live a life that pleases the Lord... There's something wrong. And you guys know, you guys have been around long enough to know that I, I, I have a, a real concern with so many folks that would, would profess to be Christians that have absolutely zero evidence in their life. And Paul had reminded them before and is reminding them again, and no doubt when he returned would remind them again and again and again, you have to live to please the Lord. It starts with true faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have true saving faith, you will have the Holy Spirit teaching and prodding and moving you to seek to live not for yourself, but for God. The flesh loves to live for me. Loves to please myself. Loves to look out from my eyeballs and see everybody else as what? Potential servants of me. Jesus said, the unbelieving, the Gentile world loves to lord it over other people. And that should not be the the case with you. And he showed, he modeled it. You serve God. You serve people. And if we don't find that kind of heart, if we don't have that kind of heart toward God and toward our neighbor, there's something terribly wrong. We talked about... We mentioned last week, we had a great comment. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So he says in verse 7, he says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. In holiness. It's important. We are saved by grace through faith. That's so important to know. Obviously, you can never do one thing to save yourself. And you're not saved, as we talked about last week, by, the, 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 by faith in Christ and kept saved by faithfulness to Christ. But while that is most certainly true, we must pursue holiness. If we are justified... Right standing before God. 
just as if I always sinned and never and always just just as if I never sinned and always obeyed, right? Because of Christ put to our account. If I'm justified, I will be sanctified. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. That's what he says right here in the text before us. Right? Let's put our eyeballs on that. Just read it real quick. Chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Your holiness. Your being set apart. What's the will of God for my life? I don't know what the will of God is for my life. It's to be holy. It's to be sanctified. I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't obey Him. What, I don't, what do I, I, Lord, what do I seek to please Him? Start there. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. He'll make your paths straight. He'll direct your way. And so that's what we talked about last time. That's what Paul begins this new section with. God's not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And he goes on from there in verse 8. Whoever disregards this doesn't disregard simply a man, Paul, Timothy, Silvanus, but God who gives His holy, notice, His holy spirit to you. Now Paul's claiming authority here most clearly, again saying, as he said before, that this is not simply a letter that I'm writing, but this is a letter that God is writing through me. These are the words of God. These are the commands of God to you, the church. It's from God who's given you His spirit. And so to resist a godly lifestyle, a life that pleases God, is to resist God, to resist His good gift, the Spirit Himself, the gift of His strength, the gift of His ability, the gift of His power. So this means that they not only, the true Christian not only possesses the Spirit, but also has a renewed capacity. And by the way, pointing out how this is tied to the Israel of God. This promise goes to places like Ezekiel 36.27. It's about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the messianic age that goes along with the new era, the everlasting, the eternal covenant, the new covenant that most certainly applies to the church in Thessalonica. These are end times promises, right? These are promises through Ezekiel the prophet that, that have to do with the end of the age. And now Paul's alluding to them. them. And it's not just this one. There there are others here as well. But the fact of the matter is, you know, we're not waiting. Again, let me press this. This is important. It's really important. We're not waiting. We're not reading Ezekiel and, and waiting for the Lord to rapture the church so we can fulfill these promises to ethnic Israel. These promises have been fulfilled on Pentecost and following as new hearts are given and the Holy Spirit is given in a new way in the New Testament era, in the New Covenant era. 
And Paul sees these people as the Israel of God. As the people that have received the promises. God has given His Spirit to you. Be different. Be different. The end time gifts, the eschatological age has come. Live appropriately and accordingly. That, that should be encouraging and exciting. I think it's helpful. It's important that Paul has this eschatological language in mind here. Um, so he goes on. We're not, we don't want to disregard God who's given the Holy Spirit. Love one another, verses 9 to 12. He continues on. Now concerning brotherly love, this phileo, right? Brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write to you. Oh, that's interesting. Why? For you yourselves have been taught by God. That's interesting. To love one another. So Paul addresses this brotherly love, a word that was usually meant for brothers and sisters in a, like a family unit. But now he's using it for the family of God, for the church. And, and he talks about the fact that this brotherly love is already at work. And you don't need, on, on one level at least, to be taught about it. Because God's teaching you. God's teaching you. And uh, again, this is language having to do with the new covenant. You know, language having to do with uh, Jeremiah's promise. In Jeremiah 31, the, the promise of the new covenant. Let me read those verses to you. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse uh, 31. 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Israel. My covenant they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their heart. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they'll all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. And so another promise of being taught by God related to the new covenant. Here alluded to by Paul. God's teaching you. God's working in your midst. And that doesn't mean that we don't have teachers. That doesn't mean we don't have pastors. Of course, those are important things in places like Ephesians 4. But the Holy Spirit is at work. God is at work here. And so, Isaiah 54, 13 says that all the children will be taught by God. John 6, 45, in the New Covenant, in, well, pointing in the New Covenant, in the Gospels, John 6, 45, they'll all be taught by God. And now we move to what happens in the church, to what happens outside of the church, in the community. You know, we're called to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. But it starts with what we do in the church. And I want to point this out briefly before we get into this eschatological, this eschatology in verses 13 and following. And I want to say it this way. Paul, I think Paul's making the point here, and see if you agree with me, that the progress that we make in loving one another within the church is what leads to and motivates living honorable lives outside of the church. 
before unbelieving neighbors. Um, if I may, this is where we practice. This is where we practice. It's interesting in this in this little in this room we're in right now, right? This is where they practice baseball, and then they go out and play. They practice with each other, and then they go out and play against others. And there's a sense in which, I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but there's a sense in which we're supposed to practice with one another in the church, the way that we treat one another in the church, and it's not just this holy huddle. We don't just lock arms and sing kumbaya and stay inside with ourselves. It leads to what we do outside. And sometimes there are errors where it's only outreach-oriented. And I've heard of churches where the pastor gets in the pulpit and says, Listen, um, you know, to you that came to faith this week, great. So happy you came to faith. Now get out of here because this church is no longer for you. Like, that's an extreme error to say, if you're a Christian now, we don't have space for you. Get out of here because this place is for unbelievers to be converted. That's a massive mistake. But it's also a mistake to say that this, this coming to church and, and being together with Christians is all we ever do. What we do with one another is first and primary. The one anothering of Scripture. But then we have to turn around and go do it before people that are outside of the church. You say, I don't know about all that. That seems hard. It is hard. Nobody said it was easy. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. But it's what God calls us to. And it's not necessarily cramming a gospel message down everybody's throat. It's not putting a tract in somebody's sandwich. It's simply living in light of the gospel. Perhaps sharing the gospel, perhaps not. Just being a person of character, of Christian character. Maybe it's people bashing someone and you just don't join in. Or maybe you encourage them to steer and go another direction. Or any manner, any number of ways to go about it. But we have to have the perspective that we do it in here. We practice with one another. Why? Why, By the way, why practicing? Because if we have been forgiven, we must forgive. Because we know that I'm imperfect. You know that you're imperfect. And we're called to be patient with one another. That guy out there, he may not be patient. (laughs) He may... He may not be long-suffering like the person in church is called to be with me. He might not be gentle with me like the person is called to be with me. And quite frankly, we don't always get it right in the church either. So brotherly love, let it continue. The Lord's teaching you. He's fulfilling His new covenant promises with you. But let it continue. And He says, aspire to live quietly. Literally, it's be ambitious to lead a quiet life. Be ambitious not to be ambitious. Uh, Ambition was a thing in those days, like it is in our days, where people were ambitious to be loud and proud and seen and heard and popular. Paul says, be ambitious to live quietly. 
Everybody doesn't need to see you. Everybody doesn't need to hear you. You don't need to be the loudest person around. You don't need to make the most noise, unless you're making noise for the gospel. Unless you're pointing people to Jesus. Live quietly. And then mind your own affairs, which, you know what that means there? Mind your own business. And, and let, me just, let me just throw this out here in a... Um, in a, uh, in a social media world, how many of us, you don't have to raise your hand, get off of social media and go, man, I just feel so edified and encouraged and I feel so good about people now. No, we go through, if we're still doing this, we go through people's scroll, what are they, what are, what are they doing? Oh, what an idiot. What are they saying? Huh. Yeah, I know they're posting that picture, but I know what's going on in that family. How does that line up with mind your own business? You get off of social media after 40 minutes of going down a rabbit hole, and you've made judgments on like 47 different people. You've plumbed the depths of what's going on in their own lives or what you think's going on in their own lives. How does that line up with this? Mind your own business. And let me just, this is my, one of my biggest things right now. Be involved in a church every week. Be involved in a church. And like, be careful about social media. Social media is destroying people's lives. It is literally destroying people's lives. There are statistics that are proving that it's destroying people's lives. Depression going through the roof for kids. Suicide watch. People taking their own lives like through the roof. So, work with your hands as we instructed you. A lot of people were quitting their jobs. A lot of people were unwilling to work for various reasons. Some were lazy. Some were quitting because they wanted to sell other stuff and go live on a, uh, a hillside because they thought Jesus was coming back. Reminds me of some of these cults, right? They, the Heaven's Gate or whatever. They moved down to the jungles in Africa or North America or South America or whatever. and Then they drink the Kool-Aid. And... Uh, so Paul's making corrections here. I do think it's interesting, and we'll get into this in a minute, but Paul was only in this church for a few weeks, and he taught him about the second coming of Christ. And I wonder how many of our churches never talk about these sorts of things. I think we can, we can get to one side and, and make, we can talk about it too much, right? And that's kind of all we ever talk about is prophecy and end times. But then there's the other side where you never talk about this at all. And so, be ambitious to lead a a quiet life. Mind your business. Work with your hands. If, you know, Paul says to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3, if anyone isn't willing to work, he shouldn't eat. We we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy, but busy bodies. (laughs) Not busy, but busy bodies. And such persons we command and encourage in the Lord to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And so we don't want to drain the community 
We don't want to be a drain on others. So walk properly, verse 12, before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Walk honorably before those that are outside, before an unbelieving world in order to please God, in order to glorify God, in order to be a positive witness to those that are outside the covenant. We aren't dependent on others because we're willing to work, willing to do what needs to be done to meet our needs and even help others. And do you notice, though, the, 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 the change here? All these things that we're called to do with one another, all these things we're called to do as, undiv- as individuals, and then he says, walk properly before outsiders. Do you see the flow of how that works? Live lives that are holy. Be pleasing. Mind your business. Be pleasing to outsiders, before outsiders. And we understand, don't we? You, you can't please everybody. And we're not trying to please everybody. We're trying to please God, first and foremost. And other times, when we stand for righteousness, when we, we talked about it this morning, it's not being a wallflower, it's not being a doormat, it's not being somebody who's bowled over. At times we take stands for righteousness, at times we stand up and do the right thing, come what may. And we choose, we pick and choose those times. But we cannot, we will not please everyone, but we must behave according to God's standards. We must behave according to what God calls us to do, come what may. We must love one another, as Christ said, so that we might effectively then go out and draw those that are outside of the covenant community toward the Lord. Uh, as we move into this, these verses... Um, we'll break these verses down. And I'm going I'm to get through them no matter what. We can come back next week and hit them again briefly. But we're going to break these verses down quickly. Theological affirmation, verse 13. Information, application. Uh, information 15 to 17. Application, application verse 18. And uh, we'll, we'll stop about 55. So Paul is addressing the return of Christ, the second coming here in these verses. And so this is the event at the end of time when, as you all know, Jesus returns to the earth. And he brings in, he ushers in the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness alone will dwell. And uh, it'll be forevermore. Paul, as I said, had taught them when he was with them for only a few short weeks, which should be a clue for us that these are really important things. That we want to have this kind of view in mind. And uh, some had misunderstood what he had said and sold all their stuff and went out and sat on a hillside or just kind of cruised around, did different things. And Paul's going to bring correction here. And uh, based on the feedback he got from Timothy, of course. And uh, it's interesting that I, I was thinking about this two weeks ago. And it just comes to my mind right now. It's interesting sometimes we get theological information and we're not ready for it. Sometimes we get theological information and we misinterpret it. We misunderstand it. Sometimes it's bad communication uh, on the part, part of the pastor, the teacher, the whatever it is. And sometimes it's just us, right? And we're not ready to get it. We're not ready to understand it. And that's what had happened to these people in, in Thessalonica. Like, he taught on this, but they missed it. They, they misunderstood it, some of them. 
And that's kind of, that's part of being a Christian. Is to continue to go back again and again, and just to kind of be able to tweak your doctrine, your theology. Listen, hear, be taught. Work it in so you can work it out. And uh, so Paul's correcting them. He told them before, but now he's going to tell them again. And I also want to say this. This is, this is massive. And I, I hope we can go home and think about this. That our lives are shaped, molded by what we believe about the future. What we truly believe about the future. If you believe that you can do whatever you want to do, and, uh, you know, everybody kind of just goes to heaven, then you're just going to kind of continue to live however you want to live and do whatever you want to do. If you believe that there's a real heaven and a real hell, if you believe that there's a hell to be avoided and a heaven to be sought after with every fiber of your being, it'll cause you to flee to Christ and cling to Christ. I think it's interesting. Uh, there's a book out, uh, Peterson, I think is the author. Whatever Happened to Hell? Where'd it go? Where'd it go? But to understand what the Bible teaches, but not only to understand what it says, but to truly believe these doctrines. To really believe what we're reading here tonight and next week and maybe the week following will absolutely change the way that you think and act and live today. Like what you truly believe will absolutely change the way that you live. So here's the topic, verse 13. We, but, he says, we, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, right? This idea of being asleep. And when Paul uses the phrase, we don't want you to be uninformed, or maybe your Bible says, we don't want you to be ignorant, it's a formula introducing new information. Romans one thirteen. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but I've been prevented. Or Romans 11.25, lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of the mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Or 1 Corinthians 10.1, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. Or 1 Corinthians 12.1, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. And he goes on from there. This is a formula for Paul to introduce new material new information common and at this time it has to do with those who have died before the return of the Lord and the connection between these verses and the previous verses has to do with the fact that some Thessalonians in light of Paul's teaching on the return of Christ had quit their jobs and stopped working like I said and stopped, stopped trying to do what they were responsible to do take care of their family, work a job, etc. They were not any longer doing that which pleased the Lord. 
And so he mentions here this sleep. And, and it's a great question because this word sleep has been misunderstood, but it's a favorite Christian term for death in the New Testament scriptures. The idea of sleep in connection with death was actually widely understood in pagan culture so that this familiar language uh, for these new converts, it would be familiar language for these new converts, but it had a major difference in the meaning. So these pagans would say, oh yeah, that guy went, went to sleep, fell asleep, whatever, however they said it. They would use the same language, but there would be a massive difference. And you know what that massive difference was? Hope versus hopelessness. Death was hopeless. There was nothing good going on. Once a person was gone, they were gone for good. They were gone permanently. Never got, got them back. Never to get them back. Never to see them again. It was a sleep from which there was no awakening. It was one long, unending night. And you know how it is when we have ideas and concepts. I hope you know it. You bring that baggage into the church. And so, and so often, by the way, words that are used a certain way out there, same word used differently in here. Same word. I was talking to somebody recently, I don't remember who it was, but I was like, they were telling me, like I was having a conversation with this person, and I thought they were agreeing with me because we were using the same language, the same terminology, and I was like, this is going great. And then we got to a certain place, and it was like, they were a million miles away from where I was because they were using the language differently. And so the massive difference between the culture outside of the church and the culture inside the church is when we talk about being asleep, we're talking about a hopeful sleep. A great hope. Paul's view of death and the future, the fate of the Christian believer, are all tied to Jesus Christ. All tied to his life and death and resurrection. And so he says, I don't want you to grieve as others who, notice what? Have no hope. Have no hope. And so... um, By the way, the doctrine of soul sleep, quickly, Paul's not talking about the soul. He's talking about the body. The doctrine of soul sleep is a heretical teaching. And Calvin points it out. He says the dead body, he he says it's not about the soul, but about the body. He says the dead body rests in the tomb as on a bed until God raises that person up again. And so death is called sleep for Christians because the body is as if resting and awaiting resurrection to get up and move again. You know, as you go to Israel, oh, by the way, did you know cemetery? Do you know what cemetery means? I didn't, I didn't even know this. It means a sleeping place. It means a resting place. It's, it's been said that cemeteries are but dorms for the dead. You know, in Jerusalem, as you go to Jerusalem, it's interesting that uh, there, are these, there are these massive cemeteries. 
and uh, they're just packed full of people. And they're just waiting for the Lord to return to see all of those people resurrected from that cemetery right there in the center of Jerusalem. This hope of resurrection, you see. And so don't grieve as others who have no hope. What a wonderful idea for the Christian. And it's one that we should spend time thinking about. This idea that these bodies are going to be raised up and resurrected. And Paul has this wonderful balance here that I think is so helpful. He's not saying that Christians should not grieve when loved ones die. He's not saying that. There are some groups that will say sadness and grief are signs of what? A lack of faith. You don't have enough faith, brother, sister. I need to rebuke you in the name of Jesus because if you had enough faith, you would be jumping around in the aisles. You wouldn't be shedding tears. You'd be celebrating. And while there's a, an aspect of truth there, it's not the whole truth. Think of Job. When his uh, children died, he grieved and he wept. And you say, well, that's just a guy. That's just a man. Well, he was the most righteous man in all the earth. But okay, it's not good enough for you. How about John 11, Lazarus? What does he do when he comes to Lazarus' tomb? And Jesus knows he's going to raise him up again, doesn't he? Of course he does. He sees the sisters and they're grieving, they're weeping. He doesn't say, get it together. What does Jesus do? He weeps. He weeps. He weeps with those who weep. He doesn't rebuke them and say, you need to have more faith. He weeps. He was weeping with and for those who had lost a loved one. He was weeping because he had lost a great friend. And he knew that he was going to raise him up, but he was weeping. Why? Still further, because he knew that death was an intruder. Sometimes you'll hear people say, and before I was a Christian, I was like, yeah, that's right. You know, you can't really appreciate life until you appreciate death. Because death is just a part of life. And I was like, that's right. That's a good point. That's not true. Death is an enemy. Death is an intruder. Death is the wages of sin. But Jesus has overcome death. Jesus is the victor. Sometimes you'll hear people say, Lion King, man. Circle of life. It's just circle of life. It's the way it goes. Nope. Death is a terrible thing. But Jesus has overcome and so, and Paul says, I don't want you to grieve. He doesn't say, I don't want you to grieve, period. He says, I don't want you to grieve like others that have no 
hope. Don't grieve, don't mourn as those who have no hope, but grieve and mourn hopefully. Never put aside your hope. Now I think it's interesting, there are many people out there that have hope of heaven and of eternity that should not have hope at all because they don't have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so many people have, you know, relatives or whatever that live unbelieving lives, never profess to know Christ, and then have funerals, and they call a pastor in to do a funeral. They never met the person, and they're like, well, they're in a better place. They're home with God. But here's my thought on that. What good does that do for anybody? I mean, do you ever wrestle with that? What good does that do for anybody? As Christians, though, we should have hope. The hope of heaven. The hope that we have because of Jesus Christ. And notice, I, I want to I point this out, and I, and I want to make an appeal to people that are watching and listening quickly as we finish. I want you to notice this. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, verse 13, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Where's our hope come from? Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so everything, 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 everything is tied to the perfect life and sin-bearing death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's a great place for us um, where we'll pick up there next week. Because he died and rose, we too shall rise. Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits of those who will rise from the dead. And so we don't have to look at our own life necessarily and that we've earned or merited or deserved. What we first and primarily need to do is make sure that we're clinging to, that we've rested and received Christ as our Savior and Lord and are seeking to walk in light of that receiving and resting. And I just want to make an appeal for anybody who might have stumbled upon this somehow, some way, uh, some shape or form. As we think about heaven and hell, Uh, As we think about heaven, and it's important for us too, but to understand and remember that the center of heaven is God. Heaven is about God. It's not about fun games. It's not about floating on a cloud, playing a harp. Heaven's about God being there. Heaven's about glorifying God. Heaven's about enjoying God forevermore. And ours is to pursue God and to walk with God so that we can see God on the last day when Jesus returns. That we can be like Jesus and see God face to face. And that's where we're going. That's where we're headed as Christians. We're going there because God made us in the image of God. And God saved us unto and for Himself. So that we can be with Him forevermore. And the difference between heaven and hell is not the presence or absence of God. God is fully present in hell. Fully present in hell. For all of eternity, in all of His justice, in all of His wrath, in all of His righteousness. And the difference between heaven and hell is mediation. 
God is in the center of heaven and God is in the center of hell. The difference between heaven and hell is that Jesus as mediator is in heaven on behalf of all of his people. And that means God's blessing is toward us forever and ever and ever. His mercy and His grace and His compassion and His tenderness and His kindness and all of these sorts of things are toward us forever and ever and ever. And dear friend, if you're watching, the only hope for you is to flee to Christ, the mediator. And if you flee to Christ... Then he will protect you from the wrath and judgment and condemnation of God because he took it upon himself in your place and on your behalf. And so, as we think about the return of Christ to usher in the eternal age, sending the sheep on to glory and the goats to eternal hellfire and damnation, that day might be today. It might come before I pray. It might come before we get in our car. First of all, are we ready today for the Lord to return? And secondly, I'll leave you with this, and I'm going to ask you about it next week. Have you ever thought about using the doctrine of the return of Christ to encourage your fellow believers? That's what he says at the end of this text, as we pointed out there before. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, I do pray for travel mercies for...